0: Welcome to the Behaviour Change Marketing Bootcamp Podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Dale. With over 20 years experience delivering Behaviour Change Marketing across NHS, public health, local government, central government. I work directly on some of the biggest campaigns such as Change for Life, as well as working on much more focused campaigns with some of our most vulnerable members of our communities. I know how hard it is to take the theory and the science and apply it frontline whilst delivering under such pressure with such huge expectations. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the wonderful world of behavioral science, the wonderful world of social marketing and design thinking, and any other clever stuff that helps us communicate change, influence behavior, and ultimately increase our impact. Sound good? Let's dive in. So hello, we are delighted to welcome into the studio today, Melina Palmer. Melina Palmer is a globally celebrated keynote speaker with a mission to help great brands and the people within them do greater things by leveraging the power of behavioral economics. Melina is the CEO of The Brainy Business, which provides behavioral economics training and consultancy to all businesses all around the world. Her podcast, The Brainy Business, understanding the psychology of why we buy has downloaded in over 170 countries and is used as a resource for teaching applied behavioral economics for many universities and businesses. And we use it all the time here. We reference it all the time in our bootcamp training, and I've listened to it since I think day dot. So we are super excited to have Melina in the studio to talk to us now and explain a little bit about behavioral economics versus behavioral science but mostly to talk about her most fantastic books. I'm just waving it at the camera, What Your Employees Need and Can't Tell You. So this episode is for the internal communicators out there, but also I would say anyone that wants to be in leadership and manage people. So welcome, Melina. Please say hello.
1: Oh yeah. Hi everyone. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh no, gosh, we're so delighted to have you. Before we dive into the book, Could you please tell us something that nobody knows about you?
1: I know it's a it's a funny thing to I've been thinking a bit of like, what did nobody actually know about me? Because I am kind of an open book and with almost 300 episodes of my podcast, people hear me talk about me way too much. But. One thing that I would say is lesser known is that I am a classically trained opera singer and I used to compete singing opera and was actually planning to go to school for musical theater when I decided to change over to business instead when I went to college. So, and I sang with a country band in Seattle as well. So, there you
0: go. Oh wow. Oh my god, that's so super cool. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Yep. Oh, so one day we'll have to get you singing or perhaps hear you. Do you do your theme tune for your podcast? Is that you? I don't,
1: no. <laughs> no, it's. A, I don't play instruments well, and that's mostly, you know, it's tonal okay. on those sorts of things. But there is a video I sang the national anthem for the Seattle Mariners, and there's a video of that on YouTube that I can share if you want that. Oh. Too.
0: Brilliant. No, that's fantastic. Yeah, we'd love to see it. I'd love to be able to sing. I get asked to stop singing when I sing. So, <laughs> But Melina, for those that don't know you, could you please share a little bit about how you got into behavioral economics? So after singing, how did you get to this point of running the Brainy Business, one of the best global consultancies in the world? Tell us how you got there.
1: Wow. Well, that is quite the, the high praise. So thank you for, the, for those kind words. So my undergrad, like I said, I went to school for business and I actually had a focus in marketing. And when I was doing my undergrad, there was one section of one book and just like one little thing that was talking about buying psychology and why people do the things they do and how they behave at work. And I thought it was just the most fascinating thing I had ever heard or thought about. And I decided in that moment, I was going to go get a master's in this but I spent the better part of 10 years calling schools and asking, and they said they didn't have a program like that. That wasn't something that existed. And so I went into industry and was working but and kind of had this back of mind, but uh, wasn't a, a key focus for me. And I was part of a, like a fellowship kind of on innovation. And they brought in some speakers from the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University, which is Dan Ariely's team. Yes. And they were there, they were talking about the research they were doing. And I realized that this was it. This was the thing I had been looking for, for a decade. And so I made them talk to me for way longer than I'm sure that they wanted to and tell me all about it. And they said it was called behavioral economics. And I went and I found myself a masters program that I jumped right into and while I knew I was early because I had had such a hard time finding this myself even on the academic side there wasn't as much uh, around because the field is still relatively new but on the applied side there was barely anything that was happening especially you know in the US here and so all the things that were really clear to me about how you communicate how this can be used for brand messaging for internal communication and pricing strategy and and all this i couldn't find it anywhere and so i ended up you know having that kind of why not me why not now sort of situation and i started the brainy business and rebranded my company and and went all in on that and and as uh, you're saying there i mean really it was the first podcast of its kind in the world and so that is where the you know having 170 plus countries with downloads we're coming up on a million total downloads so far now on the show and it's just been a, amazing. an amazing ride yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I think it just shows there's a huge appetite out there. There's lots of practitioners dotted around going, oh, yes, someone's speaking our language. Yes, tell me more, mm-hmm. tell me more. That's brilliant. And of course, you wrote the first book first, yeah, and this What Your Employee Needs and Can't Tend you is your second book. But yes. We're just focusing on this one today because, honestly, we could have you here for hours, I just know. <laughs> but before we get started, for the marketers and comms people out there who literally just where you were when you met the advanced hindsight folk, how would you explain the difference between what behavioral economics is and behavioral science? So are they the same thing or are they just like similar cousins? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so
1: this is one of those things that in a, a field and it's I don't think it's fair to say infancy anymore. We're at least toddlering around, right? We're we're young children here in this industry of the greater behavioral sciences. And depending on who you ask, I think you get different responses for what it means. And so Richard Thaler, who is one of the most notable names in the field, won a Nobel Prize for his work. You know, he is, you know, say behavioral science encompasses more than like behavioral economics is one piece in the greater behavioral sciences. And I think a lot of people accept and go with that, even though it's not clearly really defined anywhere as it's kind of being sorted out in many ways. To me, I don't think it's that big of a deal to say, no, no, that's behavioral science versus behavioral economics I kind of use them interchangeably uh, intentionally for people because I don't think for the level that most people that are listening to my show, I'm guessing with yours as well and reading my books and those sorts of things. It doesn't matter (laughs) which term they (laughs) choose to use. It's all kind of the same. And for me, I use the term behavioral economics because that's what my degree is in. And so because I have a master's in behavioral economics, you know, that's the, the terminology that I have always used. And for me, really, I use the same terms even when I'm talking about change management, when you don't have money changing hands, because I feel that you are always needing someone to buy in on whatever idea you are selling them, whether or not you have a currency that's changing hands, that's tangible money. There's something that's being exchanged that is still kind of the same principles of economics apply, And so for me, I use behavioral economics I think a lot more than most would, but I don't know that, again, I I don't think it makes a big difference.
0: Yeah. no, That's fabulous. Thank you for explaining that because I think sometimes we feel a bit more relaxed with the word science because you can experiment, you're learning so from a marketing perspective it's almost like okay we'll give the behavioural science a go and it opens up the field a little bit and then if you say oh let's apply behavioural economics you're going to get economics you're joking I don't know anything about economics what (laughs) (laughs) same thing same thing so I think that'll be really reassuring for people and to say do not be put off because it is called behavioural economics don't be put off and like you say don't think it's not relevant for all industries, especially within public health or non-profit sectors. And that's what I absolutely loved about your book, because I've written, I've written so many notes, I'm looking at them now and I was thinking, what bits can I choose to talk about, otherwise we'll be here forever. (laughs) But what I absolutely loved about your book to start with was how it placed change in an ever sort of fluctuating state and how actually change doesn't have to be a negative or a bad or a heavy thing. And it seems so obvious, but truly it is a human state to hear the word change and sort of get rigid and think, oh, what's coming? And when you work in industries like our healthcare industry over here is forever changing, organisational structures and things, I think actually starting with the understanding that change is a moving feast to begin with, is, is just absolutely key. And I absolutely loved how you said that this book is for everyone, including the employees. So even though it's a really good book for leadership and learning how to lead change, it's not a secret manual that the leaders have in order to be able to manipulate their employees. It's actually learning about your brains and let's learn how we all work. And with that, I found it gave a a true level of kindness. It made you feel kinder towards people and it deepened empathy. And I was thinking it was just so much fun to read and You're thinking the whole time, oh, God, that was me at that point. Or you could remember things in your work experience that were relevant. It's also, um, well, I've said it's fun to read. So it sort of takes me on to you talk about elephants and cookies in this book that's how brilliant you are at storytelling. So could you please explain how you got to talking about behavioral economics and elephants? (laughs) Sure.
1: Well, first, I do want to share for everyone who hasn't had a chance to check out the book yet. The Thing about change that I see, like you, you explained a lot of it there. As far as where we do brace for change, we've all been told that change is hard for our whole lives. But the the point of the premise, and a lot of what I have been talked about a lot is, you know, it doesn't have to be. You know, we change all the time, even though we don't realize it often. But the ones that are not presented well, badly presented changes are difficult for us, and our brains are biased to look toward the status quo. And we have a lot of other things that when we work with the brain can make it so change is actually a lot easier. And when you go into a change initiative at an organization, you say, well, we know people aren't going to like this, but which is how I think every single change <laughs> initiative has yes. ever happened ever. You're really priming and setting it up to where it is going to be bad. You have this mindset of you know hedging against the worst sort of a, a scenario, and it doesn't have to be that way. Also, problem with change at work is people think that the only change that matters is the one that's so big, it requires a project team or, you know, the spreadsheet of tasks and things. So you've got mergers or you've got, you know, a CEO that's retiring or a rebrand or, you know, moving into a new building or whatever that is. Yeah. And those do matter. However they are not the only changes that matter because people make an average of 35,000 decisions every single day. Let that sink in for a second. 35,000 decisions people make every day. And so really changes in those micro moments, those little tiny points that matter. And so we're always in states of change. We are in the kind of ripples and and wake of all the changes that have previously happened. We are in the existing change that we're talking and thinking about, and we're needing to be setting the stage for changes that haven't happened yet to make it so that people are going to be more receptive to them when the change comes. So knowing that change isn't just the big stuff, but these little things matter is a first really fundamental piece that's important when we think about how all the interactions we have at work are important in this culture of change, which does not mean that everything is changing all the time. (laughs) It's really the opposite of that, but being thoughtful about the changes that we do present and when, and that we don't just stack a bunch of things on top of people and think that, you know, the construction outside of the building or moving their desk is not a big deal. Those have a weight on the brain that can impact everything else. And that's really important to keep in mind, which I can just transition and roll right into elephants from that. Yes, please. Okay. Yes, yes. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So with that, so the elephant piece is based on an analogy that was presented or a metaphor from a psychologist out of NYU named Jonathan Haidt to think about your brain like a person riding an elephant. So we know, you know, we hear about subconscious and conscious brain and non-conscious or whatever terms you like. For any of the real traditionalists that would be listening uh, in behavioral economics, behavioral science, talk about a system one and system two. I don't like those terms because they're a very system two terminology that makes it hard to remember which is which. And I think it's not helpful for most people. Again, So the subconscious, we know we have one, but we don't really think about how much impact it has for us. So. In your brain, you have that logical, conscious writer that has a plan, you know where you're supposed to go, what you want to do, the best way to get there, you're set. However, you are at the mercy of the elephant, which if it wants to like run in another direction or just sit down and not do anything, you can't push or pull or logic it to do what you want it to do because they don't speak the same language and it just has so much weight and heft behind it. Of those 35,000 decisions, as an example, How many decisions do you remember making yesterday? (laughs) (laughs) A hundred? Yesterday. Right. Right. What's that? (laughs) I don't even Yeah. (laughs) And so because that elephant is doing so much. And so in the case of communication, and when we get to work, we kind of forget, you know, we like to think that we're writers communicating with other writers, but really we've forgotten that we're an elephant. And we're trying to talk to everybody else. So what behavioral economics does is it helps us to understand how the elephant, the subconscious makes decisions, the rules that it uses to make those choices and then can make it. So you get a little window into how to better communicate and be uh, kind of what I call an elephant whisperer in the way that you're communicating with those around you, including, you know, yourself, remembering that you too are an elephant.
0: Yeah, gosh, I bet no one thought they'd be listening to that. <laughs> okay, I'm an elephant, what next? <laughs> yeah. Embrace it, it's good. <laughs> one of the things I thought about the rider when you were just talking then was, especially in the workplace, there's definitely a need to be right or correct and also a fear of getting things wrong within the workplace and with around change. And it's so interesting to know that actually you don't have all of that, that control anyway. You are the elephant, and you've got all of these subconscious biases that are going to be shaking and shifting things a lot. And that is one of the beautiful things that you do in the book. You bring the biases to life. Actually, you know, you you pair them up and you show how they affect you and how they affect um, employees. And the first thing you talk about is reducing cognitive load. And I think in the workplace, one of the first things we do is actually increase information and knowledge sharing during times of change, as though that's going to be helpful. Could you just share a little bit about why reducing cognitive load is important?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it really comes down to that elephant writer piece again. And so another way to look and think about our our numbers and things is, you know, research has shown in some studies finding that the elephants can make as many as 11 million bits of information that's processing per second, 11 million for the elephants compared to that conscious rider, which can do about 40, which is a really terrible ratio. Even if it was 40,000 or 400,000, it's not great, right? And so that conscious space gets bogged down very, very quickly. And when it does, it makes it so that we are going to be more reliant on the status quo, which is how the elephant makes decisions. It likes predictability because it uses these rules to make quick decisions. So when you're presenting changes, and you've got a lot of things all happening at once, and that cognitive conscious space is bogged down, the elephant, which is more resistant to change is going to be showing up, you know, really in force. And so in this way, cognitive load can be with a lot of deadlines that you have going on, you can be having a lot of competing priorities, you can have it so people are trying to remember lots of facts and figures, if they're constantly having to learn a new process, or like I even said, if the route to work has changed from what they did typically, that can be enough to really put that cognitive strain in a way that you then rely on the biases more. And so part two of the book. So part one talks about brain and change and what it means to be a good manager. And knowing that it's not just for people that report to you, like you were saying, really, the people who report to you often have to do what you say, even if they don't like it. <laughs> and so having really great influence over people and with people who don't report to you, who are maybe your peers, or those who work above you is arguably much harder and that much more important for whatever career path you're on and really getting change to move forward. Because those people have often no incentive to do what you want them to do. But if you present the information in a different way, can make it so they're more likely to be excited about whatever it is that you are presenting to them. But if they're bogged down, they're stressed, they've got too much going on can be hard for them to be receptive, especially if you present information in a way that isn't conducive to helping them to do that. So one other thing I was going to say, so part two is then getting into these, the biases and introducing some concepts and common things that we hear or say at work. And the first chapter of that is called, I'm not biased because... <laughs> People say that a lot and uh, may have an organization that says that it's our goal to be an unbiased organization. We're going to eliminate bias from our workplace. And it's important to know that that's not possible. That can't be done because our brains run on bias. That's how they make their decisions. And so to say, we're going to get rid of it is not going to work, but you can if you understand them, you can leverage some to work for you and then you can know where something may be a problem and you want to put some steps in place to make sure that you can you know work with them differently, overcome them.
0: Okay, and where did I read about the cookies in the book? Is that in the second (laughs) section when it says it's not about the cookies? Yeah. Can you just quickly tell us why is it not about the cookies? And is this more, I think marketers will love this. It's about the framing. And Well, I wouldn't say anything. Tell us, please, Melina, about the cookies.
1: Yes. So as I said at the beginning, I use actually the same framework for change as I do for pricing strategy. And it's called It's Not About the Cookie, which is that how you present Information is more important than the cookie, the price, the change itself. So imagine, and this is part three of the book, as you go into applying this framework, is that if you imagine we're walking down the street, having a great conversation. And then all of a sudden there's this delicious scent that washes over us and go, Ooh, that smells amazing. We're still talking to each other, but we're a little distracted. You know, we're like cartoon characters with our you know noses pulling us down the street, trying to find the source of that scent. And so then we get in front of the shop and we see that there's a line and we find ourselves in the line. And then they say, Oh, today only it's buy three, get one free. And here's a sample. And, you know, before we know it, we walk out of the store, each eating a cookie with a bag of an undisclosed amount with us to have later. <laughs> so that's scenario one. So let's take a step back, walking down the same street, same conversation. Someone comes up and shoves a coupon in our face and says, Oh, today only we're selling cookies. And if you buy four, you only pay for three of them. And hey, I've got samples. Ugh, this guy, right? Get out of here. We were having a conversation. How rude are you? By the time we get in front of the shop and we see the people in line and feel bad for them because they have lower standards than us. We smell the cookies. Uh, We're going to go write Yelp reviews about how terrible their practices are. We would never buy from them and they are bad. Could be the exact same cookies in both scenarios. And just to touch on the pricing piece again, it's not, they could have been you know $3 cookies in the first one and 50 cent cookies in in the second we're almost definitely buying in the first case and almost definitely not in the second scenario and so that's where it's not about the cookie so it's not about the change you're presenting but all the things that happen how you present that information matter much more than the change itself the price itself than the cookie and so that is the framework and some specific concepts that you can be looking to when you are going to present a change so you can be more thoughtful about that and use behavioral economics to help people to buy in on whatever idea you're
0: selling. I think that would be music to everyone who's listening to ears the communicators and marketers that's got to of listen in. I think that's music to their ears because actually like you say it is how you're framing it's not about the product it's nothing that the product the biscuits were still there I kind of think I need the second guy more <laughs> because I have no <laughs> self control. And then tapping into those senses, you know, once that smells there, you're like, oh. But yeah, no, I love that. And I think you have a wonderful way in the book. So I'd highly recommend it to everyone just to read through it because you really get to understand how the biases work together. And it's quite important if you are planning change, what order to use the biases as well. I think when you first get started, and if you're a marketer coming to behavioural economics, you can be really overwhelmed by the amount of stuff there is and how many biases there are and everything. So your book is brilliant in actually showing how to use them and when and where, when and where they're relevant and really digestible. So thank you so much for that. Right, Thank you for coming first of all, Melina, but we always like to end the episode asking the same question. And that is, please can you share or recommend one book that changed your life?
1: For sure. So my go-to for this is always A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger. It is one of my all-time favorite books and it just does talk about the the brain and innovation and combinatorial thinking which sounds a lot more intense than it is <laughs> <laughs> but how we can ask better questions to help come up with innovative opportunities and projects and companies it has great examples from Airbnb and Kodak and the mm-hmm. cheetah prosthetic limb and like all sorts of things about how asking a better question can help you to get to the right answer meant to solve problems. So A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger is my top book that really I would say has changed, changed my life.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Is that why you're such a good interviewer, do you think, on your podcast? I don't know,
1: right? (laughs) Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. (laughs) I do love to ask questions. I think I'm just, uh, just genuinely interested in so many things, and I get I get excited too easily, perhaps. But I think maybe that's part
0: (laughs) of it. Oh, it's curious. Um, You're curious. I love it and so if anyone i just want to say now for the noise in the background thank you so much because my dog just decided to jump on the sofa and then do that dog thing when (laughs) they're scratching all the time but no thank you so much for coming on I really do appreciate your time everyone please go out and read what your employees need and can't tell you because it's an absolute must read Um, and check out Melina's podcast and we will hook up all the links in the show notes as well so everyone can find them thank you Melina yeah thanks Before you dash off, Melina has kindly given us a link so you can go on and download the first chapter of her book for free. Yes. So please use www.thebrainybusiness.com forward slash Ruth. Pop on there and you will see that you can access the first chapter to her book for free. Huge thank you again to you, Melina, for coming on to the podcast. I highly recommend everyone to pop over to thebrainybusiness.com forward slash Ruth and get your first chapter to What Your Employee Needs and Can't Tell You for free. Check it out. Have a sample. See what you think. I know you're going to love it. Thank you so much for listening. We're so delighted you joined us. And if you got any value out of this at all, or even if you just simply had a little chuckle, please do share it with anyone you think it may benefit. And please, if you do leave a review, oh my gosh, we would be forever in your debt. The algorithms on podcasts are pretty tough and reviews do make all the difference. So please do head over onto your platform and leave us one. And also, if you need to know anything about our latest training or you just want to get in touch, head over to our website, which is www.socialinsightmarketing.co.uk forward slash bootcamp.